I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tortoise. Hello, it's Claudia, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Ten years ago... Before Donald Trump and his rallies in the US. They're all live, and so many live cameras. You know, if it rains, I'll take off my hat and I'll prove. I'll prove. And before that Glastonbury chant for Jeremy Corbyn, there were two other politicians who regularly spoke to stadiums of screaming fans. This, uh, in my uh, estimation, has been the greatest campaign in Scottish democratic history and it follows therefore that you are the greatest campaigners in Scottish democratic history. Two powerful personalities, two friends. But what followed was a fallout and a feud. Now, this all happened in Scotland, but the repercussions were felt across the UK and they continue to be felt. Because as we approach a general election, that story of bitterness and betrayal in Scotland could just about end up being the story of the whole election. My colleague Kat Nealon has gone deep inside that feud to understand what happened and maybe most importantly, why. It's a story that spans two decades and two episodes. Part two will be out on Friday and this is episode one. But if you'd like to get it early and ad-free, as well as access to our other shows at Tortoise, you can subscribe to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts or download the Tortoise app. In the meantime, I'm handing over to Kat Nealon for, honestly, a roller coaster of a story. In the middle of a quiet residential road in a town southeast of Glasgow, A modest red brick home is being taped off. Police vans are parked up outside and a blue forensics tent has been erected. Reporters and a TV film crew have arrived. Some officers are searching through the garden and sifting through storage units. Others are holding back the gathering onlookers. Bags of evidence are taken away for further inspection. One officer is holding a spade. It looks as if he's about to start digging up the garden. No one had experienced anything like this before. So you've no idea what what this means, what's happening. The house belongs to Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrell. He has been running Scotland's governing party, the SNP, for the last 20 years. She has been running the country for the last 10. They both stepped down a few weeks ago. For months, police have been asking questions about a black hole in the party's finances and the whereabouts of £600,000 of donations. Peter Murrell has been arrested. It was, yeah, it was an incredible moment and... For sheer drama, is pretty near the top of of like you say is a very crowded field. 
And it, and it was just this huge political figure suddenly having something in her garden which you equate to, you know, an episode of Taggart. But this isn't a conventional detective story. The protagonists are not the husband and wife, but a mentor and his protégé, Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. Between them, they have dominated Scottish politics for more than 30 years. Their partnership has come close to dismantling the UK. The mystery that needs to be solved is how that partnership collapsed, whether the cause of Scottish independence will survive it, and who betrayed whom. Charismatic and bombastic, Alex Salmond has played a leading role in the SNP since the late 1970s. There was no doubt in my mind he is and probably was one of the most charismatic politicians of his generation in Scotland. He becomes the SNP's MP for Banff and Buchan in 1987. In Westminster, he's well known, popular, but something of a Marmite figure. And three years later, he becomes the leader of the party. Alex Salmond was a far more flamboyant politician, you know, he, he was always willing to stick himself out there and, and push the boundaries. Around this time, he meets a bookish university student at a freshers event in Glasgow. It's a meeting of minds. Nicola Sturgeon has found her mentor. She works her way through the SNP machinery and in 1999 enters the Scottish Parliament as an MSP in the first devolved elections alongside Alex Salmond. Labour's Jackie Bailey is also there. Nicola Sturgeon was one of the new, young, um, I have to say very shy and introverted MSPs to be elected from the Scottish National Party. But for all his talents, Alex Salmon's leadership of the SNP ends in 2000 after a series of high-profile fallouts with other party members. His focus is once again Westminster, where he remains a backbench MP. In 2004, a new opportunity presents itself. A disappointing result in the European elections prompts a leadership contest. Alex Salmond has already ruled himself out. Nicola Sturgeon is running. Running and losing. So Alex Salmond decides to step in and help. The pair meet at the Champney Inn, a steakhouse midway between Edinburgh and Stirling. His proposal is simple. He should run for leader and she should drop out and run as his deputy. And she took some time to think about it, which I think she, she deserves respect for that because um, many people think, well, why wouldn't you do that, of course? Jeff Aberdeen, who was working for Alex Salmon in his Banff and Buchan constituency office, recalls its significance. Alec recognised a lot of talent in Nicola and he was right to do that. But actually, she thought, well, hold on a second, is this good for my aspirations? And I thought that was quite telling about her character. But she did. And, um, and the rest, as they say, is history. While Alex Salmon chews on his steak, well done, as he always has it, the seeds of a political marriage that will last almost 20 years are sown. Much like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's deal, which propelled New Labour into power for more than a decade, Salmon and Sturgeon's agreement will go on to have far-reaching consequences, both for the two people at the table and the country they seek to represent. For Jackie Bailey, the deal is also a sign of the strength of Sturgeon and Salmon's personal connection. Absolutely, there was a friendship there. You wouldn't give up your seat at Westminster where you're having quite a good time to become the leader of the SNP because your protégé can't make it. That's more than just a professional relationship. That's a friendship and also a calculation that perhaps he might become First Minister. Salmond easily wins the 2004 leadership contest but remains a Westminster MP, heavily delegating to his Holyrood deputy. Three years later, following the SNP's first victory in Scotland, the pair find themselves not just leading the party but running a country. 
Jeff Aberdeen, by now a special advisor to the First Minister, recalls the mood. For that period between 2007 and 11, we were a minority government. And you cannot, and, and, and you know, you have to take my word on this, you cannot succeed if there isn't just a little bit more than just professional relationships. There was that personal togetherness as well. I'm not overstating it. There was disagreements and certainly, (laughs) as there always is with politicians, there are egos there. But there was an affinity across that shadow cabinet and the the top team of advisors as well. Nicola Sturgeon proves to be one of the few people who can rein in Alex Salmon's boisterous personality. I think it would be fair to say, and I think Alec would acknowledge this himself, that there, there probably weren't too many people who could effectively stand up to Alec and say, wait a minute, do you think we really should be doing this? Do you really want to say that? Stuart Nicholson became a spokesperson for the SNP during that first term. And I think it's testament to the strength of the relationship and the the friendship and indeed the respect which Alec clearly had for Nicola and her abilities that she was somebody who was always able to say, wait a minute, let's not do that. And he would listen. And that was that that was one of the great strengths of the relationship. One would balance the other. As First Minister, Salmond is at times dismissive and overbearing towards his juniors. But for those willing to stand up to him, robustness is rewarded. But the thing about Alec is he always took on board what you were saying. And he actually really welcomed it. If you were brave enough to go in there, I, I see Nicola certainly was at key moments, then he would perhaps in the room be be quite dismissive. Well, I, don't, I don't agree with that. But then he'd go away and think about it and come back and say, triumphantly, right, I've got it. Alex Salmond, the more instinctive politician, is impatient to seize the moment and make the case for independence. Nicola Sturgeon, more cautious by nature, would find the way to make his vision electorally viable. Their teamwork is rewarded in 2011's Holyrood elections with the SNP's first majority government. And just over a year later, something truly momentous happens. I'm delighted to say that... Uh... Uh, This agreement, let's call it the Edinburgh Agreement, uh, has been signed by myself and the Prime Minister, Nicola Sturgeon and Michael Moore. Uh, And it paves the way, of course, for uh, the most uh, important decision that our country of Scotland uh, has made in in several hundred years. It is, in that sense, uh, a historic day for Scotland and I think a, a major step forward in Scotland's home rule journey. The goal they've both been working towards for decades is suddenly a reality. At this point, Scottish independence is still a minority pursuit. Polls put support for breaking up the union in the mid to low 20s. Ever the underdog, Alex Salmond relishes the battle ahead. You're an uphill struggle all the time. But as you incrementally are increasing that in the polls, the dynamic shifted and the focus of attention became lessened. So what what does a yes vote mean for this, that and the next thing? And the focus then became on the union side to say, OK, well, what are you going to do? What's your offer on a novel? And you could see that kind of dynamic of the debate changing. And that gave us a bit of confidence and momentum. It is, for those on the inside, a gruelling yet hopeful time. On the one hand, there is unity of purpose, a sense of history unfolding. But as the pressure builds, tensions grow and tempers fray. Sources recall heated exchanges between Salmond and Sturgeon about a slide in the polls, perceived lack of preparation or support for key moments, but also for things as seemingly mundane as which podium has been allocated at a TV debate. Occasionally, the two would turn on each other. Liz Lloyd was a special advisor. They sort of had a proper falling out at some point that had to be put back together. I actually, I'm not entirely sure whether this is sort of third-hand truth that sort of results in Alec having to go to Nicholas' house and apologise for something and sort of 
put the team back together. So it wasn't always smooth. There were times I remember he was sort of at one point towards the end, after he'd had a bad TV debate, you know, he got a bunch of people in the room and started talking about throwing out the currency policy and starting again. And we were like six weeks from the referendum. And you're like, she was just like, what is he talking about? You know, we are not doing that. But that's where her ability to calm him down kind of comes into play because he would be up like that and there'd be people around him going, oh, maybe we should, maybe we should. And then everyone would leave the room and she would kind of go, well, we're not doing that. Jeff Aberdeen, by this stage Salmon's chief of staff, remembers a similar moment of tension around Salmon's first TV debate with Labour's Alistair Darling. It hadn't gone well. He tried to paint the no campaign as peddling a bunch of scare stories and tried to take the most ridiculous ones that had been um, outed in the press and, and point as nobody believes a word you say. But the way that he had delivered it, it didn't work. And after that, you know, I remember Nicola Sturgeon going, you know, what the hell's going on here? Well, why is he not going on our core messages about, you know, a fairer side, painting Westminster on their inability to support a fairer country and not representing our economic aspirations? And we quickly convened again in Dundee. Nicola was probably, in my opinion, at her very best and outlined exactly how Alex should approach the second debate. I didn't agree with everything Nicola said. It was quite a tension-filled discussion, but ultimately Alec adopted a lot of what Nicola suggested and then put his own polish on it and his own added piece as well. And and that that bore fruit. I mean, the, the, the second debate was a, a huge victory for, for Alex Salmon. Although Alex Salmon is taking the lead, particularly with the TV debates and larger events, the referendum campaign also gives Nicola Sturgeon a chance to shine on her own stage. I think this is when she sort of starts to grow out of his shadow. Liz Lloyd is by her side throughout. She was doing the town halls um, where it was sort of going very well for her. Um, But actually you then saw a bit of a difference because she was doing so many town halls. She was honing the arguments every night in front of the public. She was getting what the public's questions were a lot more than he was. And then when you see him do the big debates and he doesn't do them very well, it was kind of showed that sort of gap in practice, if you like. <laughs> you know, She had this way of, I'll become better by doing more of them. And I think he had a, I am good at this, so I will just go on and do my debate. And it didn't quite work out. Towards the end of the campaign, a poll suggests a slim majority for independence. For Salmon and Sturgeon, the dream is so close the union suddenly feels in real peril. And so Westminster politicians unite and come together in a last desperate bid to stop Scotland breaking away. Scotland does not belong to the Yes campaign. Scotland does not belong to any politician, Mr Salmon, Mr Swinney, me or any other politician. Scotland belongs to all of us. But perhaps, caught up in their own hype, the power of their personal support, the independence campaign fails to respond something Jeff Aberdeen now regrets. Gordon Brown gave a very sober speech, you know, in front of a, a lectern. And, uh, then you'd have David Cameron talking about the uncertainty with the banks that had just come out and said, oh, well, you know, we're going to move our brass plates, all these sorts of things. And in response at that point, frankly, we were crowd surfing. And so we had, you know, visuals of Alec Salmon, Nicholas Sturgeon and Jim Sillers together, united again, for those who know their SNP history, uh, crowd surfing. And, and my regret is 
we didn't temper that crowd surfing with a bit more sober analysis as well. Say something, you know, at a lectern in, a, in an auditorium saying, look, guys, we knew they'd do this. They're panicking at the last minute. They've taken you for granted for so long. You know, hold the course. Uh, this is exactly what we anticipated. And I felt that was a big, big regret from us as a campaign on, on reflection. With a crucial moment in UK history at stake, the turnout is astonishing. Nearly 85% of eligible voters have their say. Gathered in Edinburgh's science centre Dynamic Earth, the Yes team's hope of a seismic result ebb as a final poll is released, suggesting an outcome of 55 to 45 against independence. A lot of people in the campaign, maybe less experienced, had still hoped that, you know, it's just a poll, it doesn't matter. But I think we, we knew at that point that, it, it, you know, the game was up. And so it was very difficult to hold it together and the emotions were coming out and you became, I remember becoming very tired all of a sudden. So the adrenaline had rushed and then I didn't watch any of the results come through in the television. I knew, you know, you just knew. So Alex Salmon came down from the northeast to Dynamic Earth. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon came across, John Swinney came down. And I remember we all convened in a room and I, I remember this like it was yesterday. There was just a joint hug and I was in that hug uh, and everyone was crying and the emotions were everywhere. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of stuff about, oh, was Nicola Sturgeon really committed? Was, was all her job just to be the next leader? No, she was 100% committed. We all were. Liz Lloyd is busy trying to support the despondent Yes team, drained after their epic slog. Well, I remember taking staff out to the sort of the back corridor so they could have a cry and then, you know, like get back to work. And everybody's just so disappointed and the mood in the room just, just hugely fell. When you've spent you know, not just a kind of month of the end of the campaign, but sort of two years on solid campaign. Nobody's had a day off, nobody slept, everybody's absolutely exhausted. But I remember him coming down from Aberdeen and her coming across from Glasgow and meeting in the basement of this place. Um, and they met on their own. <laughs> you know, we were all chucked out. But like when she arrived and she was gutted, he was very down, very dark. And... And, you know, that's, that meeting is the point at which he starts saying he's resigning. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Putting emotions to one side, Alex Salmon snaps back into politician mode, as Stuart Nicholson recalls. Alex Salmon spoke to David Cameron. There was a phone call in the early hours of the morning. And I remember we could, uh, myself and one of Alex's then private secretaries, 
civil servants listening uh, on the other side of a, of a of a partition or a wall, and we couldn't couldn't really couldn't really make out too much of what we were only hearing one side of the conversation. Anyway, we were only hearing the first minister's side of the conversation. But Alec was his uh, typical ebullient self. You would never have guessed the nature or the, the 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 fact of the outcome because he was he was very chipper. He was you know putting a very uh, positive face, positive gloss on things, and his his tone with David Cameron was. Uh, I seem to recall a very upbeat, cheery, good morning, David, how are you? It was that kind of, uh, but obviously that was, uh, that, that was a uh, conversation was serving a purpose, a conversation that had to be had. Uh, but I think there was, you know, there was a lot of emotion as well. Uh, people were, you know, absolutely gutted at the result. Much like his call to the Prime Minister, Alex Salmon's concession speech gives little indication that tears have been shed just hours before. Indeed, Anyone watching would think the First Minister had just got started. And Scotland has, by majority, decided not, at this stage, to become an independent country. I accept that verdict of the people, and I call on all of Scotland to follow suit in accepting the democratic verdict of the people of Scotland. But behind closed doors, a long-planned but highly secretive exit strategy is being put into place. Jeff Aberdeen is part of Salmon's Inner Circle. So is Sturgeon. Nicola and I knew what Alex's intention was. Nobody else did at that point in terms of the campaign team. I went back to my hotel room um, to try and get some sleep. And Nicola phoned me and was hugely emotional on the phone saying, we've got to persuade him against it. We've got to persuade him against it. He shouldn't stand down. So there was efforts. We did. And we went to, I went to Butte House before the press conference called and chatted it through. And I said, are you sure? And he showed me his speech, um, you know, the, the dream will never die speech. He was going to give... Uh, for me as, uh, as leader, my time is, uh, is nearly over. But for Scotland, the campaign continues and the dream shall never die. And the permanent secretary was there as well, Peter Housden. So Peter Housden um, and the three of us in there. And I just turned to him and I said, are you sure? And I said, you know, we, we could be onto something special actually here. And he said, no, 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 I have to remove myself from it. And while the assumption has always been that Nicola Sturgeon is waiting in the wings, she doesn't immediately step onto the stage, as Liz Lloyd explains. We did the Butte House thing. He resigned. A bunch of special advisors went to get ridiculously drunk and drown our sorrows. <laughs> um, and I remember phoning her from just as we were going into the pub to say, like, I've given everybody else the media bid, so you've got a free weekend. Like, I've cleared it. And her just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the weekend to think about it. And me being like, what do you mean think about it? And she's like, just not really sure I want to do it. You know, and I think she did want to do it. It was just, do I really, really want to do it? And it's just, you might have dreamed of doing this job, but suddenly it's there in front of you. You know, and I think it's, you know, it was a human reaction of like, I'm not running out in the next five minutes to say, I stand, I'm going to take the weekend and think about it. But, you know, by Sunday, she decided she was, definitely doing it and launch the next week. So it wasn't a long moment of doubt. There really was only ever one successor to Alex Salmond. Handing over to Nicola Sturgeon weeks later, he praises his protégé as outstanding. Any parting is tinged with some sorrow, but in this case it's vastly outweighed by a sense of optimism and confidence. Confidence that we will have uh, an outstanding new First Minister. And talks bullishly about the prospects for Scotland, as well as independence. But I'm happy to say with every degree of certainty that more change and better days lie ahead for this Parliament and for Scotland. 
As the pair hug, their friendship and political partnership appears as strong as ever. And public support for Nicola Sturgeon is through the roof. Said she'll be the most accessible First Minister ever. So let's call her onto the stage. Please welcome our new party leader, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. During her pre-coronation tour of Scotland, the new leader packs out venues, including the 12,000-seat Hydro Stadium in Glasgow. Party membership swells to 92,000, eclipsing the Liberal Democrats and making the SNP the third biggest party in the UK. It should be a new dawn, but the former First Minister casts a long shadow. Behind the scenes, fractures are beginning to show. Salmond is privately unhappy. Former leader thinks that Peter Murrell, the longtime chief executive of the SNP, should quit now that his wife Nicola Sturgeon has taken the reins. He raises his concerns with outgoing chief of staff Jeff Aberdeen. He said, you know, that you shouldn't have the leader of the party and the government in the same house. Hold, um, and he made, he said that to me. I remember over a dinner in uh, a restaurant called Shintotri at the time, and, uh, and 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 you know he was right. Um, I believe. He might have, uh, uh, he, he spoke to Nicola about this privately um, uh, as well. Campbell Gunn, a senior special advisor to the Scottish government under both Sturgeon and Salmon, got the gist of Sturgeon's response. Uh, my understanding is that uh, he said to Nicola that uh, for her to be First Minister and her husband to be Chief Executive of the party was an untenable situation uh, and that. Uh, Peter should stand down and, uh, as my, again, my understanding is Nicola just refused point blank mm. that she wasn't going to have that. According to Kieran Andrews, Scottish political editor for The Times, Salmond also approaches Peter Murrell. We took him aside and said, look, you know this isn't going to work. It doesn't look good. There's no checks and balances. And they say that Peter Murrell just went ashen and effectively almost refused to speak about it. Um, Nicola Sturgeon did not do the same thing, was a, a bit more diplomatic, but refused to give any commitments. And then not long after that, uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrell gave an interview to the Sunday Herald newspaper, effectively publicly rejecting Alex Salmon's suggestion, which was probably the first sign, although people didn't really know at that point that it was Alex Salmon's concerns behind the scenes but that was the the first sign when you look back retrospectively of uh, a divide between the two mm. that Nicholas Sturgeon and Peter Murrell thought the thing to do was to publicly dismiss Alex Salmon's advice. But while Alex Salmon is giving advice that falls on deaf ears he is also being given advice of his own. In his last few weeks as First Minister Salmon invites former MSP Duncan Hamilton and Jeff Aberdeen to dinner at Butte House. There, his old friends try to offer him a path out of politics. Now, I came armed to this dinner with all these different options that come forward. And I, I won't name companies or organisations, but let's just say there was a visiting uh, professorship at a very senior, <laughs> um, well-regarded university in America. There was a um, non-executive directorship in an energy company. Uh, which he loved. I mean, energy was, you know, he was an oil economist by by trade. And there was also the opportunity to join a board of a sporting organisation, which I think he would have particularly liked. 
And I said, look, this could be, you know, take time out. And again, I'm not being clever after the event. I'm really not. But I did. I did this, you know, and I said, please don't don't do what I think you're going to do. And he said, no, I'm going back to Westminster. I'm going to you know, stand there and rally troops. I've put, I've, you know, I've put my cards on the table about the future. And then and, and, and I think I need to see a bit more through. The dinner gets heated, but Salmond is resolute. He is hooked on politics. Having left Westminster seven years earlier, his plan is to stand once again as an MP at the next general election. But that dinner was over a, a glass of wine, maybe a bottle of wine, maybe two bottles of wine, and it got pretty, it got pretty testy. At which point, I walked out, uh, couldn't believe it. And I was like, I'm so disappointed. The 2015 election just so happens to be the biggest SNP victory to date. Salmond wins his seat of Gordon with a majority of just under 9,000 a 14% swing in his favour. I look forward to representing the people of Gordon constituency to whom I now turn my thanks. And I look forward to representing every constituent regardless of their political views in this election or any other. I think what you have to remember is the the absolutely overwhelming scale of that election win and what it did for Nicola Sturgeon's credentials as party leader and first minister. With 56 MPs, the SNP is now the third biggest party in Westminster and a force to be reckoned with, as Stuart Nicholson recalls. Because this was a this was a sort of off-the-scale, off-the-charts electoral win of a kind which, you know, I mean, people talk about, so it's more than once in a lifetime, probably more than once in a century. I mean, it was, it was a kind of tsunami uh, of... of you know, previously unimagined, unimaginable proportions. Uh, and the effect of that politically for, for Nicola Sturgeon was that Nicola's position was, you know, established and underlined beyond any doubt whatsoever. So however big a figure Alec may have been and continued to be uh, from Westminster, the election result and, and the scale of it just meant uh, that, that that Nicola was, you know, to, she was completely completely her own person, completely secure in the job as party leader and first minister. Be that as it may, SNP apparatchiks recognise that the big beast of Scottish politics will not sit back and watch events unfold. On arriving at Westminster, Salmond is handed the role of foreign affairs spokesman. It's a position befitting the status of a former leader. Senior SNP figures hope it will stop him backseat driving while Nicola Sturgeon is at the wheel. By this point, says Liz Lloyd, the long-distance relationship is cooling. They're each getting on with their own thing. So she's not needing advice on how to be First Minister from him. He's doing his foreign affairs thing. Uh, They're kind of drifting, you know, further and further at this point. So, yeah, it, it wasn't antagonistic in any way, but it wasn't hugely close anymore. I think, and just through the sort of natural passage of time and of different roles, not because anything had kind of driven them apart. I mean, people say, you know, Alec was causing her trouble at this point. She was largely not bothered by the things that Alec said if he differed in public. You know, that was kind of just, he's going to do that. It's fair enough. Britain's vote to leave the EU in June 2016 gives the foreign affairs spokesman a reason to seize the spotlight. And she'll follow forward on that manifesto, which explicitly dealt with these circumstances uh, as providing the material and significant change which would justify the Scottish Parliament calling another referendum. And while the politicians may seem united in purpose... The manifesto that the SNP was elected on last month said this. The Scottish Parliament should have the right to hold another referendum 
If there is a significant and material change in the circumstances that prevailed in 2014, such as Scotland being taken out of the EU against our will. Scotland does now face that prospect. It is a significant and material change in circumstances and it is therefore a statement of the obvious that the option of a second referendum must be on the table. His repeated media appearances prompt more than a few exasperated sighs back in Edinburgh. When Theresa May makes her ill-advised decision to call an election in 2017, the SNP also suffers key losses. However, it is an inescapable fact that we also suffered some bitterly disappointing losses last night. I want to pay tribute to all of the SNP candidates who campaigned so hard but who won't be returning to Westminster. I've been 30 years as a parliamentarian in the northeast of Scotland and that's true. It's been the, the privilege of, uh, of my life to do that, particularly to my long-standing election agent Stuart Pratt. Uh, Stuart guided me through uh, nine elections successfully. Uh, I'm sorry, Stuart, that we couldn't make it ten together. Alex Salmond loses his seat two days after the death of his father. Jeff Aberdeen meets his old boss at the funeral. It's apparent that Salmond blames Sturgeon, at least in part. Alex was obviously extremely emotional because um, he'd lost his father, obviously, but uh, we had a chat there and... Yes, he was hugely disappointed at the nature of the campaign the SNP had fought um, and and felt hugely despondent, actually, um, towards it. And, and, you know, it was perhaps a moment where there was fractures in, in that in, in his relationship with Nicola, I, I would have thought. I mean, um, uh, but yeah, certainly he was... Very disappointed. I don't think he'd ever lost a personal election before then, i.e. A, a parliamentary election, you know, in a constituency before then. And did he blame her for that then? I, I think he, well, he, ultimately the buck stops with, with Nicola as, as as any, as it stops with any leader in terms of the strategy that's undertaken. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure she wouldn't have been solely in his sights in terms of blame or, or um, but, but I, I think he thought the whole strategy at that time was wrong. Uh, for the, the, the circumstances that the, the country found itself in. Cut adrift, Alex Salmond casts around for the next job and winds up on stage at the Edinburgh Fringe. Scotland's former First Minister Alex Salmond is back, just not as a political heavyweight. Instead, he's looking to be a big beast on Edinburgh's comedy fringe, taking on a two-week stint of stand-up and conversations with special guests. I didn't actually ask the Donald because... Uh, I was tempted to ask him. I bought a ticket and went along as a, as a punter. Campbell Gunn was in the audience. It, it did make me laugh, mm. but um, he's not the... I mean, he, he's not a, a natural comedian. And uh, he tries to tell jokes. Uh, he tells jokes, but uh, his timing is perhaps not... What a professional comedian would do. One particular joke involving several female leaders raises eyebrows for its old-fashioned sexism. I mean, the first thing I would say is Alex Salmond is not sexist, and you know I'm fairly well qualified to comment on this because I've worked with Alex Salmond very closely for what almost thirty years now. So he's not sexist. Uh, the second thing I would say though is uh, occasionally Alex not always as funny as he thinks he is, and perhaps this is an example of. A joke that perhaps belongs more in the Benny Hill era than it does in the modern era. Uh, I, 
I cringed at that joke, but people laughed. If you ever really wanted evidence that I wasn't there, or <laughs> I wasn't there, because I'd have advised against that. Back in Nicola Sturgeon's office, the headlines generated by this joke are greeted with the feeling that he's no longer their problem. I think if she'd had uh, the chance to read that one beforehand, she would have done her, certainly done her best to talk him out of it and might have succeeded. You know, I think there was that attitude of like, what's he doing? Just, you know, sort your shit out. Um, like, be the person you can be, not this. Like, just reducing himself. And so when he said stupid things, you increasingly didn't feel the need to comment on them because he was doing damage to himself anyway. But if Nicola Sturgeon and her team felt they could finally wash their hands of Alex Salmond, they would soon be proven wrong. In the next episode of The Betrayal... And I think Alex Salmond is a very angry man. And Alex Salmond will want, at some point, his revenge. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. If you liked it, then please do rate and review us. Betrayal, Alex and Nicola, was written and reported by me, Kat Nealon. It was produced by Valerio Esposito and Matt Russell. Sound designed by Dominic Delaghi. The editor was Jasper Corbett. Tortoise. 